a little bit more. Not all, but most commentators believe John wrote his, his gospel first, then wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and finally wrote the Revelation. These all, if these commentators are correct, these all would have been written between 85 and 96 A.D. He would have been a much older man then, unlike the strong young buck we just discussed. He would have been the last remaining apostle at that time by several decades. All the others would have been martyred most gruesomely, if not all, for preaching and for refusing to confess anything less than Jesus is Lord. Paul, not one of the original 12, but Paul was beheaded. And I bet Paul skipped and sang a happy tune on the way to his beheading. I bet he kissed the axe man on the cheek and said, please don't miss, I'm going to see Jesus today. It'd be a good way to die. Peter was supposedly crucified upside down. Thomas was suddenly, excuse me, Thomas was supposedly stabbed to death with spears. Looks like he lost that faith problem, that uh, doubting problem that he had. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and clubbed to death. And that's just to name a few. Not John. In his sovereignty, God had different plans for John than all the others. Strange, really, it was so different than the others. John lives to perhaps 90 or more years, and every other disciple was murdered most before they were 60 years old. God used him differently, and God can because God reigns. God is the only complete sovereign. God never said, oops. God never says, "Uh uh-oh. God never said, what is John still doing here? He is sovereign, and he was sovereign in a special way in John the Apostle's life. Before John's exile to the island of Patmos, he would have been bishop or overseer of the seven churches that he would eventually write the Revelation letters to. You remember them. Ephesus. Paul planted Ephesus. The other ones were probably planted by this church too, but we don't know for sure. But Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As bishop for that area, home base for John would have often been Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, the town of Ephesus. And the verses we are going to look at today... They are not an evangelistic message. John is not fishing for men as he was first called to do by his Lord. His original intended readers are already caught. They already know the good news. But strange teaching and teachers have come up from among their own fellowships. Doubts have crept in. John wants to help them overcome these doubts. Who better than him? John has seen Jesus. John was Jesus' best friend on earth. John was Jesus' most trusted disciple. Jesus told him from the cross to take care of his mother. That's trust. John is going to let the reader know that they can trust him to tell them about Jesus because he has seen him and lived with him and knows him better than anyone. So our first verse. 1 John, first chapter, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John just jumps right in here. He knows these people. No introduction. Just, okay, let's go. John knew his, knew his readers, and his readers knew him. As the last remaining apostle, by some 30 years, John would have been <clears throat> looked at with as much respect and reverence as any man ever, probably, other than Jesus. He was so well respected in the first couple of decades after Jesus ascended into heaven that the apostle Paul name dropped him in Galatians 2, 7, 9 as agreeing with his argument with the Judaizers who were trying to convince young converts to Christianity that they still needed to practice the Mosaic law, especially concerning circumcision. That was the first great heresy of the new church age. And now, some 40 years later, 
John was writing to teach, correct, and rebuke concerning the second great heresy. So verse 1 starts with the phrase, that which was from the beginning. That's Jesus. John says in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 of the same chapter says, that Word became flesh and came to live with us. So this is Jesus John is talking about in 1 John. This Word of life, that's Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have touched. When John says we, he means he and his fellow disciples and the experiences they had together as they followed Jesus some 60 years ago. Frankly, they were like me. They did hear him, but they didn't always hear him so well. Are you still so dull? Jesus said once, or at least it was recorded once, but he said it a lot more times than that. I ask myself the same thing. Joey, are you still so dull? The answer is often yes. The apostles heard him for three years. They heard for the first time things that we have heard hundreds, if not thousands of times. And the world has heard billions of times. The most profound things that have ever come out of a man's mouth. They were there listening the first time that they were uttered. What blessed ears they had. But what responsibilities came with those ears. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They first heard that the first time it was ever said. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. To the Jewish person, they knew that he was saying that he was God. He also said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He also said, whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. He also said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All of these ideas were contrary to all previous ways of thinking until those thoughts came out of Jesus' mouth. And they are certainly contrary to my flesh and the way I naturally would think. Whoever talked like this before? Love my enemies, you say. How do you love your enemies? They're your enemies. Perfect. How many times have we said, I'm not perfect? I can't be perfect. Nobody's perfect. He told me to be perfect. I have to be a slave to be first. In some some, um, countries, or whenever slave was, uh, was actually still going on, a slave wasn't even a full person. They were last. And he says, I have to be a slave to be first. It's a blessing to be persecuted for any reason. And they were going to be uh, persecuted pretty, pretty roughly. And it's a blessing to be treated that way. That's what Jesus said. Impossibilities, every one of them. But Jesus would show them the way to be that way. He would show them that he is the way to be that way. John also saw him with his own eyes for three years. We... Me and you, we have read about these things and were awestruck. John saw it. He saw the leper healed. What did that look like? You ever gone there? Did the leprosy fade or was it instantaneous? He saw the withered hand healed on a Sabbath as the hateful religious leaders looked on. He was angry and yet still healing this young man. He saw the storm stopped in an instant. And by the way... (laughs) 
Jesus was sleeping while the disciples were losing their minds. Jesus is our example in storms. He saw him walk on water. He saw him make dead people alive again. Have you ever thought about seeing that for the first time? They touched him. They saw him. They lived with him for three years. And so John knows Jesus as the word of life. What does that mean, word of life? John 14, 6 is going to be a verse we use a little today. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. He also said in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So there in those verses is the life part of this word of life. It's eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ. And God made a promise about eternal life. God gave us his word about eternal life. In Isaiah 7, 14 It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a promise. In Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a promise. Both of those are promises. That's God giving us his word, the word of life. Have you ever made a promise to someone and said, I give you my word? God had been making this promise for thousands of years. That promise was his son, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased, a son who could bring to us eternal life, who would bring to us eternal life. God gave us his promise. He gave us his word, the word of life. So back to our text in verse 2. And they touched him, and the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This promise, this word from God who brought his reward of eternal life with him, this word from God, the Father is revealed finally. It's finally made manifest. What does manifest mean? We probably all know what it means. In the Old Testament, God put words in the prophets' mouths that pointed to a coming Messiah. But it wasn't completely understood. It was partially hidden. Manifest. The Greek word is phanerao. I believe I'm saying that correctly. It means to make known that which was previously not completely known. Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets spoke about. If you could choose a moment when Jesus himself officially unveiled himself or made himself manifest, it would be Luke 4, 16 through 21. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 600 years plus of waiting since Isaiah wrote that. Just promises in the form of prophecy, but hidden and not fully understood, but not that day. It's officially hidden no more. He's been made manifest. He's been unveiled as to who he is. And so in these first two verses of 1 John is kind of a resume, quite a resume. He only has one reference on this resume, but it's a really good one. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. And John's previous work experience on this so-called resume was pretty good, too. He saw Jesus, he heard Jesus, he touched Jesus, he lived with Jesus. So he's definitely qualified for this job that he's taken on in this letter. John is about to challenge some evidently pretty intelligent, pretty impressive false teachers that have come into their sphere of influence. And they are saying, they are saying, things, they, they are saying things like they have a better understanding of Jesus and the way of salvation than what they've been taught. Later, John would call these teachers antichrist and false teachers. Paul would call them fierce wolves. The word for fierce there means violent, cruel, unsparing wolves. He really stresses that. And then on the first John 1, 3 and 4, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul had challenged the first great heresy of the church around 50 A.D. And that can be read about in the 15th chapter of Acts. If you'll remember, Paul and Barnabas went to talk to the pillars, uh, the leaders of the Christian faith that were then centered in Jerusalem... And that group, that small group, included John. And now this same John, some 35 to 40 years later, is going to face down the second great heresy of the church age. And it's called Gnosticism, or it's the beginnings of Gnosticism. And we'll talk a little bit more about Gnosticism later. The name of it doesn't really matter because there's nothing new under the sun. And this is going to be coming from a place where Paul had warned false teachings would eventually come from. Paul had planted the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. And here is what he had to say to them as he was departing in Acts 20, 28-30. Somewhat prophetic. Paul's talking. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We must protect the flock at all costs, the weaker ones especially. Now back to a little bit about Gnosticism. We don't don't have to know exactly what Gnosticism was in this case. But a brief maybe explanation is that essentially it denied the true humanity of Christ. Because matter was evil. I don't even know what that means. I'm just telling you this. It combined some Greek beliefs with Christian beliefs. But essentially, it was just some self-appointed intellectuals 
sitting around trying to figure out things that were already beautifully figured out by Yahweh God before the foundation of the world, but it wasn't good enough for them. Does that sound vaguely familiar, maybe? 15 to 20 years ago, they were talking about reimagining the gospel. How arrogant do you have to be to come up with the idea that the gospel is not good enough and I need to reimagine it, Rob Bell and Brian McLaren? They're not here today, are they? Good. You know who I'm talking about, about Rob Bell, I bet. Today, we call it the social gospel. The social gospel is just not a fully formed gospel. It doesn't forgive every sin, apparently. So what it was with these guys and with everybody who does this kind of thing is essentially the gospel plus something. Not Christ alone, not sola Christus, which we have as one of our foundational beliefs. Again, these are wolves. Fierce wolves have come, as Paul predicted they would. We don't often characterize false teachers these days as fierce wolves. Not fierce. We treat them as something over there or way back then. I even joke about it from time to time. But folks, fierce wolves are close to us. Even in the largest churches in our own denomination, and we just need to be aware of that. They can come anywhere. Fierce wolves. Not an accident that Paul describes them this way. Because they are leading some, and some is probably the wrong word, some to hell and still are today. They are blind guides, Jesus said. Jesus said, leave them alone. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. There is great danger there. And that's the end of the rant until the next rant. A little more about Gnosticism. Gnosticism Gnosticism is actually a Greek word that means knowledge. And the inference is a special knowledge. A bit more enlightened. A bit more awake to who Jesus really is. Others were kind of asleep. These Gnostics you could call woke. Anybody ever heard that word before? And once again I'll say, there's nothing new under the sun with that word woke. Everybody thinks they got it brand new and all figured out. And it's old and they don't have it figured out. All false religions have their especially enlightened ones. They may be called literally the enlightened ones. The root word of Buddha means awakened. And another word for awakened is what? Okay. Woke. The enlightened one may be called Ayatollah in Islam or senior apostle in Mormonism. Or how about Pope? Does that religion not say that he has a special line to God? A special relationship? A special enlightenment when it comes to what's right and what's wrong? They're all wrong. We even have a time period we call the Enlightenment that was centered around the idea that man's reason is the primary source of authority and legitimacy. Ironically, we as Christians know that anything that centers around man's reason as the sole authority is actually spiritual darkness. Not enlightened, dark. John is saying, well, let me tell you where light comes from. Let me tell you who is really enlightened And who is in the dark? Or, more specifically, let me tell you who is dead spiritually and who is alive. So back to our verses, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is the opposite true? If you don't follow him, are you walking around in the darkness and don't know? And also in his gospel, John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you don't believe in him, you're in darkness. You can't see, you can't understand the things that really matter in life. I have seen the light. That means that I have finally understood something I hadn't previously understood. Something has been made manifest that was hidden. Light and darkness, in this instance, is the same as seeing and blindness, spiritually speaking. Have you ever said that? Oh, I see. I see now. The light came on and we've understood something we didn't understand before. If you are in a dark room that is unfamiliar, you have no idea what the room looks like. But turn the light on and you can see. If we are not saved, we are standing in the dark, whether we know it or not. Only when Jesus, the light, enters our lives can we truly see. Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins and asked God to save you? Are you walking in the light today? It's a good question to ask. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to test your southern roots right now. Hank Williams, Sr., had a song that was pointing to this idea. I would really love to sing it for you, but I have neither the talent nor the courage. But Lloyd, maybe one Sunday, could do that for us. Name that song is I Saw the Light. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I really wanted to sing that last couple of lines, but I'll spare you. But anyway, this, this poor man, this poor fella... Maybe that's not completely theologically sound, what he said, but he seemed to be getting close to the right idea with those lyrics. But he would die of alcohol poisoning in the back of his Buick while on the road in the Southland on tour, leaving behind a wife and a young son named Hank Williams Jr., also known as Bocephus. What is this idea of light that humans want to claim for themselves? Why does man call himself enlightened when he follows his own reasoning as his legitimate authority? Why does man think he can be the light? Doesn't it go all the way back to the garden? What did the devil say to Eve? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be awakened, so to speak. I won't say the word again, but it rhymes with joke. And again, we need to hear this. There's nothing new under the sun. Technology has changed. Man's heart has not. Social media has come along and made uh, man's heart easy to reach larger numbers of people, but man's heart has not changed. And Orthodox Christianity has been playing whack-a-mole 
for 20 centuries as newly enlightened groups and cults have popped up with their additions to the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ. Man is not the light. Christians know that they aren't the source of light. Jesus did say, however, you are the light of the world. He also said to let your light so shine before men. But our light is a reflective light. We're the moon, not the sun. The moon is a big, dark, dead rock. But when the sun shines its light, we see a big, bright moon because it's reflecting that light. And I'm a big, dark, dead human until God shines his light on me. In the same way the moon reflects the sun, we are to reflect the light of Christ to others. The moon reflects the light of the S-U-N, and we are to reflect the light of the S-O-N, S-O-N. Ancient mariners would look at the moon and the stars to guide them to safe harbors. Can the lost look at me and you to guide them to the safe harbor? It's stormy out there on the other side of those walls, folks, and it looks like it's going to get stormier. But the Lord Jesus is still saving souls, and he has chosen to use us to do it. With all this talk about the sun, the moon, and the stars, maybe we should have met in a planetarium today. Or maybe a sanitarium. Just kidding. So back to the text for this morning, 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are all walking in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship, very important word for us. Greek word is koinonia. What a beautiful word. It means an intimate, close, special relationship. We have a fellowship hall. Every other week, except for the summer, our men and our women gather together to experience this closer fellowship as we gather around God's word, we pray together, and we share a meal together. It's a special time and a unique time for we sons and daughters of Jesus Christ and everything we do, even this morning, is fellowship. Well, a lot of us gather outside of church. It's fellowship. It's special. But we don't get to have that special fellowship with each other until we each, as individuals, have fellowship with God alone. We've been studying Joshua. What a man. He said this, and maybe it's one of his most famous ideas. He said, you choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's saying, no matter who you serve, I'm serving the Lord. He's saying, I really want to fellowship with you, but first and foremost, I'm going to fellowship with the Lord. I hope you do too. And Jonathan Edwards, maybe the greatest thinker this country has ever produced, Christian or otherwise. He wrote this. He wrote down these resolutions for himself, but they got out for us all to look at. And he wrote in resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, even if no one else does, I still will. That is very profound. Resolve is uh, the root word of resolution. And resolve is a very important attribute for the Christian. You must have determination. You are being pulled in every direction. You are being tempted in every direction. You have to be resolved to live 
for God no matter what else is going on around you. It is impossible to have an intimate koinonia relationship with an all-powerful being that describes himself as light, and yet we walk in darkness. You can't walk on the beach on a sunny, cloudless day and it be dark at the same time. That's ludicrous. What John is saying, it is just as impossible and just as ludicrous that you can say you've been born again into a relationship with Christ and yet still live a life dominated by sin. God is light. Sin is darkness. Those two things can't coexist. So, that koinonia fellowship with all of our brothers and sisters begins with each of us having a fellowship with the one. But when we do get to fellowship with each other, look who we get to hang out with. All of you. 1 Peter 2.9 describes us, you and me, as a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own possession, owned by him, made by him, and made for him. Who among us doesn't want to hang out with folks like that? That's our eternal family. And it feels good to be in here together. After dealing with the world all week, I feel dirty sometimes. We come together to fellowship with our Lord and his people, and it's like breathing fresher air than is on the other side of those walls. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you have heard this story. Um, That's what it felt like the first time Cheryl and I visited Mount Moriah. The preaching and the feeling of people genuinely interested in us That very first special koinonia feeling of you reaching out to us after our first visit, we were so excited that we couldn't wait to get in the car and head to the restaurant to compare notes because that's what we did when we were searching for a church. So we hightailed it out of here and one of our leaders, I won't say who, told Pastor Michael, well, we won't see them again. Au contraire, mon frere. We came back, and we've never stopped coming back, and we love being here. And that's where we get that special koinonia feeling from, is you folks. So back to our next verses, and I am going to combine verse 8 and 10, since they are similar, so I can end with verse 9, one of the great verses in the entire Bible. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What is sin? We know what sin is. What does it mean to sin? The Greek word for sin is hamartia, if I'm pronouncing that right, which means to miss the mark. Whatever that mark that God has set, whether it be the Ten Commandments or anything that you know God wants you to do or not do, anything that would fall under the huge umbrella of loving your neighbor as yourself, And loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. All of this would fall under the heading of the target that God demands that we hit. The original writers of the King James Bible and other English versions of the Bible used the word sin because it was an archery term that meant missing the target or missing the mark. And archery was a big thing. In the archery contest of that day, the shooters would stand at a line and a target was placed some very good distance away. 
The, the shooters could not see the target very well, just enough to aim, I guess. So a spotter was placed near enough, near enough to the target to see the results, but not so close as to be in harm's way. As each arrow flew, if that arrow missed the mark, the spotter would turn and yell, Sin! So the shooter could hear it and the audience could hear it. So the word sin was adopted to describe this word for missing God's target. How would you like to have a spotter that walked around with you and could read your mind, and every time you sin, they just yelled out, sin! <laughs> Mine would get hoarse pretty quick. <clears throat> but sin is a very serious word. R.C. Sproul described every sin as a red-handed rebellion against God. In a word, God's target is perfection. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These verses teach that if we say we have no sin, we are saying we are perfect and the truth is not in us. We are lying and we are calling God a liar. And who is John saying that to? He's saying that to this, his, his, his audience that he's writing to, but he's also saying it to me when I downplace my sin or excuse my sin, when I say or think I'm only human, Nobody's perfect. I make mistakes. Did you see how slow they were driving? And I do that constantly. I got excuses right now on the tip of my tongue. And if they don't work, I got more excuses on standby. But Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, says, man, he gets to the point. He says, our deceitful heart reveals an almost satanic shrewdness in self-deception. If you say you have no sin, you have achieved a fearful success. You have, put on, you have put out your own eyes and perverted your own reason. And notice he did not say that we have been deceived by Satan. He says we have deceived ourselves, and it is very Satan-like. <clears throat> and the truth is not in us, our text says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, if the truth is not in us, Jesus is not in us. And when God repeats stuff, we should, pay, we should pay special attention. When the Bible says the word woe, that's one thing. If he says woe, 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 you better buckle up and really pay attention. Or when, when God describes himself as holy, 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 and not just holy, you should know that God thinks a lot of his holiness, and we'd better think of a lot of his holiness as well. And here in verse 10, God, through John, kind of repeats the idea he just wrote in verse 8, so maybe this is an idea we need to pay special attention to. Verse 10 says, again, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Very similar to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Evidently, these false teachers that were now in their midst, men that John would later characterize as antichrists, plural, and false prophets, were teaching them that when one became a Christian, they not only no longer have a sin nature, but they could no longer sin. How many people know that's a lie? Paul was the best of us, and look at his struggle. Romans 7, 18 through 22. Paul speaking, bearing his soul. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, that is the thing that I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he goes on to pour out his heart pretty good. Oh, wretched man that I am. He understood that about himself, but he also knew where his deliverance was from. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Listen, uh, folks, if Paul was struggling with his sin during the time that he wrote that letter to the Romans, then I might be an axe murderer or worse. And I didn't bring my axe this morning, so relax. Don't hold on to your sin, folks. Give it to him because of verse 9. What a great verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A quick prayer at night that asks God to please forgive all my sins is not really confessing like this. We do ask God to forgive us of our sin, S-I-N, once, and he does it for all time. But John is writing here to Christians who've already been forgiven of their sin, S-I-N, So why is he teaching them to confess their sins, plural, S-I-N-S, so that they will be forgiven? Well, just ask Paul. We all continue to sin. We are just no longer able to sin freely as we once did if we are saved and growing in Christ. And when we acknowledge, confess specific sin, it is part of growing. You've got to attack specific sins. Otherwise, what are you shooting at? That sanctification is these specific sins that you go after. You and the Lord go after. And we'll talk about that, how that happens here in a minute. Confess. Some have called this verse the Christian's bar of soap. A little frivolous maybe, but confess your sins and don't hold back. God will cleanse the humble one who confesses. The Greek word for confess is hamalageo. I think that's right, hamalageo. And it means to say the same thing as another, to agree with them. In the legal sense, confessing means to agree that the charges against you are true. In this case, the person you are agreeing with is God, the Holy Spirit. This confessing for believers will be a lifelong, everyday exercise because God is asking for everything from you. Your flesh, that old part of you that causes us to sin... Though we call it dead, we'll fight you until we have crossed the river to glory, no matter who you are. We must die to that part of ourselves. Essentially, confessing sin is killing our flesh. John Owen, the famous John Owen, a Puritan, famously said, and you've probably all heard it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But that's not the whole quote from that Puritan giant. Listen to the whole quote. He said, he said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you daily. C.S. Lewis He's really good at explaining stuff, some of these things especially. And here's a quote from him. 
Christ says, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones that you think wicked. The whole outfit. No half measures with God. In God math, half a commitment is no commitment. Half each equals zero in God math. What C.S. Lewis just said is kind of about confessing. It's about killing your flesh. Give him all. He is faithful. Has he not proven himself faithful? Does God not do what he has said he will do in all cases, for all people, for all times? He is faithful. And he is just in forgiving because the penalty has been paid. And because the penalty has been paid, he is now just in forgiving us. So we can praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your son allowing you to be this way with us. Lord, thank you for your son and the disciples that he taught. Thank you for the disciples that you taught who are now teaching us. All is part of your plan. Thank you for that special fellowship, Lord, that we all have here or are able to have here because of your son. Lord, we just want to tell you that we love you, that we want to live out being in the light throughout the week, Lord, all the time. And again, Lord, we just want to tell you that we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.